Welcome back to Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show. It's uh, Richard Berkison, and uh, today's show is called I Don't Understand. And it's all about ice time, benching, when to bench, when not to bench, why even bother benching, at what level should you do it. And I brought back from, um, where was he? Where is Rick? Greg is somewhere out in the wilds of, of Ottawa. I've got Greg Kennedy back on the line. Welcome back, Greg. Here we go again. I don't understand. <laughs> you don't understand why I don't have you back, why I have you back? <laughs> I don't understand why I'm not on more often. What's the problem down there? Uh, we can we can we can arrange that. I have the technology. Okay. <clears throat> okay. And yes, I am in Ottawa. Yes, we are in the You're off season. Confused there? No, not not confused. We are in the okay. off season in April, <laughs> to say the okay. least. To say the okay, least. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know about you, but I get approached a fair amount at, either by phone or email or uh, coaching clinics during the year about ice time, fair ice time, equal ice time. It's a huge issue. And I, I honestly have to say that out here in the GTA, uh, I see more issues, uh, extreme issues with benching kids at lower levels or younger levels than I remember seeing in Ottawa. I don't understand. It's sad, eh? <laughs> it's sad. I, I, I've, I don't get it, especially at the younger age groups. I think uh, people don't seem to understand uh, from a coaching standpoint why you would bench someone. What is the intended goal? What is the outcome you are looking for? Uh, and I think that plays into decisions in the first place. If there's a solid reason for it and everyone understands what the reasoning is, then maybe you can get some sort of benefit out of it. I get the impression that often coaches just make a knee-jerk decision. And they just sit kids for, you know, two, three, four, five minutes. I've heard stories from coaches. I had a phone call from a coach this season uh, who was just beside himself because he didn't know what to do um, about his son's coach benching kids, including his own kid. There were a number of them benched for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine minutes and then not letting them play in overtime, you know, in some tournament or something. Uh, and I would agree with you that that probably is a, you use the term knee jerk, but it's, it, uh, to me, it stems from one basic mistake made early in the year. Every coach has a set of team rules, or at least should. And the problem is they outline those rules, make sure everyone understands these are the rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Make sure you do this. Arrive at that time, whatever the rules are. And yet with those rules, you fail to provide a list of consequences for breaking those rules. And then all of a sudden, somebody does something that's, oh, my God, that's horrendous. We have to do something about this. And you decide you're going to bench the kid without anybody knowing ahead of time that that's even a possibility. There, most hockey associations, uh, even without mentioning AAA, we'll say AA down uh, and into House League and whatnot, most hockey associations have some kind of rule, however flimsy it might be, concerning fair ice time or equal ice time. Would you agree? I would agree, yeah. But the problem there, is... There should be something. Yeah, but the, the problem is that they're flimsy. So to give you an example, <laughs> you, you and I talked about this when we had the TSN show a, a few years ago. We, we talked about uh, creating a disciplined document. 
so that it was a guide for coaches to say, all right, you've talked back to the coach. Uh, and there were two other people who heard it. And we've had a little conversation, uh, you, the player and myself and another coach. And then we went to the parents and you've done it a second time. You're now going to sit a period. In other words, there's an escalating series of steps that may lead to being benched for a period, be benched for five minutes or, or whatever it might be. It's not the first, thing, it's not the first thing that crosses your mind. Yeah, there's consequences, and they're laid out ahead of time. Right. Have you done that? Well, uh, I have a – here's something that I've used in the past. We call it a benchable offense. There's a certain point in the season where things have been taught to an extent and practiced to an extent that now there's an expectation that the players should be able to execute without making the same sort of mistakes or the same sort of – mistake is a strong word, but uh, – it gets to a point where this is the expected behavior. And if it's not going to happen, then this is a benchable offense. And it's sort of a contract with your own players where even together in the room in a conversation with your team, you can talk about it and say, okay, fellas, what kind of suggestions would you guys like to offer for suspended or sorry, for benchable offenses? And a lot of times your own players will talk about things like, you know, he stays on the ice too long or takes bad penalties, fairly obvious things. But eventually, if you, you steer the conversation, you facilitate it properly, your players will start bringing up things from more of a tactical standpoint. You know, if, the, if, if X doesn't do this in this situation, that's a benchable offense. And I, I've used that a lot over the years. Now, are you talking about, though, from a higher level perspective? Because the reason I ask, before you answer, the reason I ask is that, I, are you not conflating uh, benchable offenses regarding performance and execution as a player versus yeah it's, it's about execution yeah behavior self-discipline attitude talking back to the coach swearing at the referee <clears throat> throwing your stick across the bench you know you know and those kinds of things having nothing to do with whether or not you were in the right spot on the breakout <laughs> good point but you and, and i know that i've shared with you before how i usually establish team rules i let the players create their own rules and, and we use a, a, a fine system of a loony or a toony, depending on first offense, second offense, whatever. And I let the players make those rules. I usually divide them up into, into four groups of four with a captain kind of overseeing things and let the players come up with a list of arrival times and behavioral things and dress code and stuff like that. And then I let the players take responsibility for that and enforce it amongst themselves. Did you do that when you were coaching your, your kid in house league? In house league, we, we did establish a set of rules, not to the same extent that I did in, you know, that I have in higher level, but with house league teams, for sure. I've done that with kids to teach them. We're like, we're talking about responsibility. We're talking about accountability. And those are lessons that you can teach to any level. Like I think, too many coaches get hung up when it comes to teaching players and, and how to talk to them. They get hung up on the fact that they're only house leaguers. I don't care if they're quote unquote, only house leaguers, how old are they? What can they handle mature wise uh, based on their age, based on their intellect and their intelligence. That's what's more important than what level they're playing. A 12 year old playing house league is no different than a 12 year old playing triple A hockey. He still has the same level of intelligence and can be held to a certain level of uh, accountability. I would argue too, that um, all coach, all, all coaches, all kids want to be led. They want proper leadership. 
They feel that I think kids gen- generally, unless the kid is a sociopath, but you know, I, th- I think, <laughs> I think all, all kids um, are okay with being held responsible as long as it's reasonable. I would agree. Every kid is held responsible, be it in his home setting, in his school setting. There's responsibilities, there's timetables, there's things you do at certain times of the day. There are certain expectations of you from a behavior standpoint, from a from a work standpoint. So why can't you carry that into sports? Now, I, I have a theory, because I know you love hearing my theories. Oh, go, please. Okay. I, you know, when I was throwing around this topic in my melon, to determine, you know, when we would do this, what we would talk about. I contacted a fellow I used to coach in Montreal many, many, many years ago in Pee Wee and Bantam. It was House League and sort of House League Plus. <laughs> what? what are you laughing at? What are you laughing at? Okay, this this is some guy you coached in Pee Wee. Yes. So, so he's, he's in an old folks home now? No, he's, <laughs> well, he's younger than me. So where does that <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Go ahead. Sorry so, to interrupt. That's no, you're not. So uh, it's not like I've never done it before. Right. <laughs> I contacted Bobby because I just wanted to confirm in my own head that when I was coaching in my first, I don't know, six, seven years or so in Montreal, I don't recall ever benching kids. I just didn't. And uh, so I asked him about it and he says, no, you never, certainly the three years or four years that, that he played for me, he doesn't recall anybody ever being benched. And then something else dawned on me. You know, I, if I look at the team pictures back then, there were like 11 or 12 kids on a team. Now, yeah, less, right. yeah, now there's 16 or 17. When you have 10 skaters or 11 skaters and one goalie, you're not benching anybody. <laughs> good point you know so now teams have nine and six plus two goalies um and there are some areas where they try to push the coaches into taking nine and five or nine and four well we don't have enough good defensemen and my argument right. is you'll never have enough good defensemen if you go with nine and four um, i say the same thing all the time where yeah. do you how do you think they're suddenly going to materialize at bantam if yeah. you're not training them since adam you clowns Right. Uh, do, you, do you actually say you clowns or are you just thinking it? I, I, I use that uh, term affectionately often, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, with, with but, two- but to further your point, though, Berkey, even into yes. today, yes. with I don't understand. Guy, oh, there it is. I don't understand. I just said it again. There. I've got nine forwards and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bench a line for the third period. How do I expect these players to be able to, be able to perform for a 15-minute or a 20-minute stop time period with only six forwards like come on it's it's almost like watching teams pull a goalie in the nhl you remember the nhl we used to have that it was a league that played pro it was on tv a lot um cool you know they're they were where teams pull the goaltender with two and a half three minutes to go and they're down two goals because it's a, some miracle is going to happen i don't know what the success rate is but when you're down two goals with two and a half or three minutes to go it can't be that good um yeah but coaches are doing it in minor hockey and, yeah. you know, with far less practice, obviously with far less skill, far less hockey IQ, and they expect 11-year-olds to suddenly pull a rabbit out of the hat and be able to score because the goalie is pulled. So they pull the goalie and they, they've got their best four forwards on the ice and they burn the crap out of them for the last minute and a half and nothing nothing comes of it. Okay, Okay, we're supposed to be talking about players, less players on the ice, not more. 
No, but they're playing the best four or five in the last two <laughs> I know. Games. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the whole point. Um, because so, they, yeah, yeah. some miracle is There's no happen. energy there. No. They don't have the conditioning. Yeah. No, no, they don't have the conditioning or the wherewithal. So, you know, when I hear stories about coaches benching kids, um, you know, the argument they'll, they'll make at, at a coaching clinic all the time, almost invariably at a coaching clinic. Well, what about the last yeah. minute or two of a game? I said, well, the last two minutes of a game is pretty much three shifts. You know, unless the kids are eight years yeah. old, they can't come off the ice. But it's about two to three shifts. So you're just going to play the best two lines back and forth for the last three shifts and burn them? You know, uh, I mean, you're playing with a, it's a three line game. It's not like junior hockey in a four line game. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I, I usually deliver the same sort of message when I get asked those questions at clinics too. Uh, we talk about the, the how is the conditioning level going to be there for that? But not only that, these players aren't used to going for 45 to a minute coming off for 45 to a minute, going right back on again. I mean, that's like a, that's a two to one ratio, I think, isn't it? That's a one. That's to one pretty ratio. difficult. Yeah, that's one to one. Well, yeah, I mean that, that's one to one. Yeah, that's difficult for anybody, let alone you know a, a, a 12, 13, 14 year old hockey player. Um, but you, you, but that's a, that's something you face all the time, especially some of your listeners who are coaches will get it from parents. You know, they want they want you to shorten the bench, shorten the bench. Well, uh, we don't have the talent or the conditioning level to be able to do that. So what, what if you do have the talent? What if you do have a team that's got, let's say, six or seven forwards who are clearly head and shoulders above most of the other kids in the league? You've got maybe three really strong. In other words, you've got one of those glorious teams that we get once in a blue moon. Uh, and you've got, and you've ironically, got, I've had that. Yeah, well, so have I, where you go, I, yeah. no matter who I put on, something good is going to happen. But usually I will do something like that earlier. Like, like you mentioned two and a half or three minutes left. I I've gone to, I don't know, start of the third period, you're down by a couple goals, go to what is quote unquote, your third line and say, Hey boys, I just want to give these guys a couple of minutes here and, and see if they can't get us back in this game and then go, you know, two lines for a few minutes. But again, that's from the AAA perspective. If you're looking, yeah, sorry. if you're looking at a well, don't apologize. That's where most of our experience is. But if you're looking at at tier two, tier three, tier four uh, competitive hockey or house league hockey, where you might have a couple of kids who can dangle, uh, you have one defenseman who can actually pivot going backwards. What benefit, <laughs> what benefit is there in uh, in playing your best four forwards and hoping that it works out? Hope isn't a plan to begin yeah. with. Um, uh, it, it drives what's that? That goes back to my original point here. If you're going to do it, you better have a plan and you better understand what, what is the benefit of doing it? What are you going to get out of it? And what you get out of it better be really good because you're risking alienating the, the lesser players who aren't going to experience that extra ice, who aren't going to get that, those extra minutes and those opportunities and now you're really in trouble because you've got people who aren't happy with you. I'm going to give you an example here at a high level. Uh, I won't mention names, but you'll know who I'm talking about and what team I'm talking about. Uh, I was with a junior B team with uh, 
a certain guy that you and I both know, tremendous fellow, tremendous coach, his initials are DC. And <laughs> yeah, the season before, wait a second, <laughs> hold on. Yeah. The season before, a midget AAA team in the Ottawa area went all the way to the national championship. They didn't win. I remember that team. Yeah, they went. It was like a lightning bolt. They It was a first-year coach. He had been an assistant one year, head coach one year, and they went all the way. Uh, they didn't win, but they got pretty darn close. Uh, the following season, uh, about three of their players who had been cut by junior A-teams uh, came to us in our junior B team. And we talked to them, and we figured my, – my thinking was – when you've got somebody who's experienced being in an Ontario championship and then in a national championship, there are things you take away from that experience that can only be positive, I would think, right? As yeah. For a player. Okay. These, well, but. Two of the, but these two guys told me how little they played both in the All-Ontarios and in the Nationals because he played pretty much two lines two to three defensemen and a goaltender and rode that wave. He had good enough players. He could do it. He got away with it. Uh, and, and one kid in particular, a big left winger. I remember watching him in, in the training camp. And I thought, wow, he's, he is just going to be dynamite, but he had no skill. He couldn't play. I mean, he did eventually play, but at the junior B level, he was sort of okay because he had not played uh, much the previous year in midget. I was benched. It's like we said, like only we, we all agree that players get better when they play. Sure. Right? We, we, so we talked about sags and the improvement that can come from that, from, from facing scenarios and learning how to, how to get away your things or how to get around things or make something work. And if you could, don't let them play and let them face those scenarios and, and figure out the game, then you're, you're doing them a disservice. What do you do with those coaches who are benching kids like that and, and they really haven't put together proper team rules or it hasn't been monitored or they haven't been mentored uh, or they've just been left to uh, fly by the seat? You know, what do you do? You just answered the question. It involves mentoring and monitoring. I mean, if somebody isn't there from a development standpoint within the organization, working with the coaches and, and knowing what's going on and watching things, then, then you're like, you can't come back on them later and say, well, we don't like what you did. Like you, you, you need to have uh, oversight is a strong word, but that's what's required. Somebody has to be talking to these coaches and working with them and mentoring them and, and helping them. What does a parent do? Yeah. Well, we all know what parents do. They turn into stopwatch dad and you get a full printout of every kid's ice time for the last six weeks. Well, that, yes, that's, uh, yeah. There aren't many of the stopwatch dads or stopwatch moms uh, that I've seen. I, I see more of the, like, like the phone call I told you I got not longer, well, a few months ago right. from yeah. the dad, where you're, you're talking extremes. And I actually uh, said to him, uh, look, um, are you being a little bit, are you exaggerating a little bit here? You know, are we talking about two or three minutes or, you know, five shifts type of thing? He says, no, there were two or three kids that would be benched for eight minutes, nine minutes in a 12 minute period, you know, uh, or yeah. 12, 12 or 15 minute period. You're talking eight minutes in a 15 minute period is half the period and then bench through overtime. And it wasn't once it was frequently. Okay, so if you're running an organization, you're the president of, of 
whatever minor hockey or you're the uh, you're the convener for that age group and you're getting these kind of complaints from parents doesn't it seem obvious that there there's things you could have done ahead of time where gee you know you could have realized this was happening and address the issue if you only had somebody there in a development slash mentorship role working with the coaches who sees it happening before there even are any complaints and nips it in the bud well therein is part of the problem parents don't speak up like this guy called me he didn't call the convener he didn't call the association he called me uh i wasn't in the association so okay but i'm saying the parent the parent doesn't have to call you the parent doesn't have to call the president if there's somebody there representing the association Mm -hmm. working with the coach it never gets to the stage where a parent has a complaint because this guy that the association hires realizes and sees it and addresses it with the coach before it even gets to that stage. I don't know if it was addressed with this particular coach in this instance, but I do know that that coach has been given his team back. <laughs> well, there you go. So obviously yeah. there's no oversight. There's, right. There is no mentorship program there, obviously. Mm. Well, there's a, there's a problem. There's certainly a problem. Yeah. <clears throat> but you know, so then you, then you've got to try to figure out a way to, I mean, it, let's face it, half the time when you're dealing with coaches and trying to establish behaviors, behaviors and norms with coaches, a lot of it is trying to convince coaches. You're trying to sell coaches. Like, that's not the way you should be doing things. You should be doing it this way. And if you're coming up against some sort of a, a hard ass, you're going to have a tough time convincing the guy that what he's doing isn't right. Now, I, I do understand that there's a lot of pressure brought to bear on coaches, either from, you know, the, there's always some small cabal of parents on a team that are hell-bent on winning and their kids are the best three kids on the team. Um, or the coach himself is a little bit too competitive, doesn't quite get that he's dealing with 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds, uh, tier three, tier four, you know, house league selects, all-stars or something. Um, and uh, he's got to be reined in. If he's not prepared to be reined in, I don't want him around. I would agree. So if I'm the mentor there, um, I'm going to come to the conclusion that this guy can't be worked with. And even if he could be worked with, he's probably not the kind of guy we want around. So that another, yet another reason, Berkey, you're presenting to have people in positions of mentorship development. Uh, I don't care what you call it, but you need to have people within your organization who, who over your coaches. You know, uh, Hockey's a really strange sport in terms of how difficult it is to coach, you know, in, in minor hockey, because there's no clock for the length of your shift. Uh, you could argue that there should be. I mean, there is in the, in the U8. The old buzzer. Yeah, the buzzer system. Um, but coaches are left to their own. Uh, they, we know it's difficult to get the kids off, off the ice sometimes. That's a given. That's their age. But, um, you know, if, to come up with a hard and fast rule – at the beginning of a season, not the code of ethics, but the rules for the team and say, uh, I'm going to roll the lines, but the, the, it may not be rolling one, two, three. It may be two, one, three. It may be two, three, one. Uh, I may be shifting a kid from line one to line two, um, you know, defenseman playing forwards. There could be all kinds of things that happen during the course of a year that will determine how the lines are going in a game. And it may change every two games. It may change within a game. But in the end... Yeah. In the end, the ice time pretty much works out. That's what it should be. 
Agreed. Like it's like the old rule of uh, a lot of associations have some type of a fair ice time policy. Okay, how do you handle special teams then? You know, they, my standard practice is certain kids will kill penalties, certain kids will play power play, and certain kids will do both. And it all sort of kind of washes out and evens up in the end. Some nights we're going to take a lot more penalties. Some nights we're going to get a lot more power plays. So it should work out in the end. But in house league? Well, in house league, none of that applies. In house league, you roll three lines. Like, exactly. come on. Yeah. There can't be. I'm going to use the word clown again. Any clown out there who thinks that he's got a power play in a house league situation is can you repeat i don't know where you put your mouth but can you put it closer to where you're talking <laughs> and, and repeat any that clown, any clown who thinks he should have special teams in a house league scenario is an idiot okay <laughs> is an idiot or I a mean, clown I, I, we get asked these questions I'm, I'm teaching a clinic and somebody will ask me you know like what should i be doing on my power plan i say well first question is what's the age group you know what's the level like uh, seriously, in a Pee Wee House League game, should I really be? Or sorry, in a Pee Wee House League practice, should I be introducing and teaching and practicing my power play when nine times out of ten the other team's not exactly going to play a box? Like your your set plays off the power play. I kind of need the other guys to be the Washington Generals and do what they're told so that we can execute <laughs> our little plays. Yeah, right? Washington. It, it, Washington it, it, could you please educate our listeners as to who the Washington Generals are? <laughs> the Washington Generals are the team that loses to the Harlem Globetrotters every right. single night. That's but right. They're told they're told to play man to man. Right. If they don't play man to man, none of that stuff works. No. So let's take this to the competitive level. And this is where the problem arises because of the use of the word competitive. And I'm not talking about AAA and perhaps a little bit of AA. But once you out here, we have four levels of competitive, AAA, AA, A, and AE. When you've got coaches, right. when you've got coaches at the A and AE level, which for people in Ottawa is Rec B and, I don't know, House League All-Stars or something, I guess. Um, when you're talking about level, th- you know, level three, level four competitive hockey and coaches are not rolling the lines, they're playing so-called specialty teams and benching kids, then I think the use of the word clown works well. <laughs> I agree. Oh, here's my other favorite one. You go to an association and they've got a rule that says the last two minutes belong to the coach. Right. Right. He can he can do whatever he wants in the last two minutes. Right. My my first question to them is, what if I get a five on three in the middle of the first period? Yeah. That might be the most two most important two minutes of the night. Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to wait around to the last two minutes of the game? So yeah. We're, we're pretty much on the same wavelength here, aren't we? It's kind of scary. Oh, shocker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's it's a hot button topic in minor hockey. But what astounds me is that associations knowing it goes on or that it goes on with, you know, a particular coach and it's been going on since October. And now you're into, let's say, December, January, and the same thing is going on, but parents aren't complaining. And I've heard that from associations too. We haven't heard any complaints. We have a, we yeah. have a director. We have a director for our, for our Adam league or U10 or whatever it is. And the director hasn't had any emails or phone calls. Well, you know, now yeah. you're telling us in December that there's a problem. So, well, again, it, it's it's it starts when the association doesn't have 
guidelines or let's use a stronger word like rules concerning ice time, concerning benching, concerning rules and consequences for breaking the rules, or better still, rules for coaches and consequences for coaches who break those rules. If the association doesn't have that to begin with, and then follows it up by not bothering with some type of mentorship program or oversight of their coaches, right. then they're just asking for problems. That's right. Well, I'm glad we solved that problem, Greg. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's what we do. It's so easy. I know it's so easy yeah. from here. All right, sir. I uh, thank you again for your time. Oh no, thank you. It's always a always a pleasure. Always fun. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get you on again to uh, do something else. We'll solve another problem. There are only like two or three other problems we haven't addressed yet. Yeah, yes, then we're done. Then we're done. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, Greg. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Nice talking to you. You want you want me to hold on on hold while you do your professional wrap up? Or I'll do, do my do? Pro- I'll do my professional wrap up. This stay on the you line. You go. Okay. Okay, all right. I'm listening. All right. And now for my wrap-up, here's a bit more about ice time in minor hockey. There's no sport as difficult to play as hockey. The only one that might come close would be Quidditch, the game played at the Hogwarts school in the Harry Potter series. However, there, you need to have brooms that fly. So if hockey is difficult, imagine what it's like to coach a game, especially with children. Changing lines is an art form. Trying to give feedback between shifts in just a few seconds while watching the players skate by is often an impossible challenge. For most coaches, it's learning on the job. But the game's structure does not lend itself to making ice time even remotely close to equal or fair. Thankfully, the new modified ice program for the U9 children includes a one-minute buzzer. You have to watch that in action to see just how difficult it is to change kids on the fly, even with a sanctioned time limit. By the time the change is done, some kids will get 50 seconds on a shift, and some 40. Without a buzzer system, line changes are extremely difficult. Invariably, the far side winger or defenseman, or the slower kids, or just the ones who are engrossed in chasing the puck, never seem to get to the bench when they should. Try as they might, Most coaches really struggle with line changes and trying to equalize ice. Rolling the lines is fine in theory till one line stays on too long, like for over a minute or more, and you desperately want to get the next set on. You manage to yank them off after a reasonable 45 seconds, but this occurs frequently. Next thing you know, one line has played minutes more than the other, which wasn't the intention. Yes, there are ways to address that problem, something I've talked about to coaches in clinics and seminars. But then there are the coaches who, as stated in the chat with Greg, deliberately sit kids for long stretches. This even though the association has a policy against it. Not all coaches are well-meaning. Not all coaches know better. And not all coaches should be coaching minor hockey. I don't understand how they can be asked back. Personally, I'd rather have someone whose hockey background and ability to teach are minimal, but has the right attitude and approach, wants to learn, and believes in kids playing. What do you think? Drop me a line at richard at grassrootsminorhockey.com. Next on Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show. What's it like to be a goalie parent? Thanks for listening.